Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Business First Bank, with locations throughout the state, including 11 offices in the Baton Rouge area, providing personal and commercial banking, treasury management, and wealth solution services to help clients succeed. Business First Bank, banking with greater momentum. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world. From Mad Sewers on the Boulevard, we're out to lunch with Stephanie Regal. Stephanie Regal is a broadcaster and editor of Baton Rouge Business Report. It's business Baton Rouge style. Hi, I'm Stephanie Regal. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Nationwide, there's a lot of talk these days about two major subjects, infrastructure and healthcare, specifically how to improve and rebuild roads, bridges, and other vital connections that we all depend on and how to pay for the level of increasingly complex health care that our aging population requires. My guests today are problem solvers whose locally owned companies are in the thick of these two fields helping to forge solutions. Tim Barfield is president of CSRS, an architecture and engineering firm that specializes in design and program management for government and private sector facility and infrastructure projects. CSRS is developing a particular expertise managing projects in the P3 sector, or public-private partnerships. Tim brings a unique background to his role in the company. He's an attorney who spent years as an executive at the Shaw Group. He also served as Governor Bobby Jindal's Secretary of Revenue. Tim, very interesting, diverse background. We look forward to hearing about what your plans are for CSRS. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Great to be here, Stephanie. Matthew Ratcliffe is CEO of Navion, a local company that is harnessing technology to help reduce health care costs and deliver better care. Navion has developed a communications platform to help the families of critically ill patients communicate more effectively with the doctors and hospitals that care for them. Like Tim, Matthew is also a seasoned executive with a diverse background. He's also an attorney with experience in brand management and the entertainment industry. Matthew, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you for having me. Well, Tim, I'm going to start with you. You were running the Department of Revenue during Governor Bobby Jindal's administration. How did you end up heading up an engineering and design firm a couple of years later? Well, if you if you back up, <clears throat> if you back up at the Shaw Group, that was a lot of what we do at, at CSRS is very similar to what the bulk of my business experience has been in my career, and that's being in the infrastructure business and engineering construction companies. And this is a little more focused to. Uh, the architectural and engineering side of it, civil engineering with the infrastructure focus, the base infrastructure of roads and facilities and water, wastewater, sewer and those things. So it's a narrower focus in terms of markets, it's a narrower focus in terms of geographic markets, but it's really the bulk of what I've done most of my business career. So so really it was your it was your time in the Jindal administration that was was the aberration. But. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> I will say that it, roughly two-thirds of our, our clients are government agencies or institutions so understanding and having relationships and in, in government's been a big help and understanding how the the people in the seats I used mm -hmm. to be in make decisions and what's important to them I think is a big asset now too no question now now CSRS is, is unique in a lot of ways and I know they were one of the first firms in this market at least to combine architecture and engineering that was it's more commonplace today but 20 30 years ago it was not yeah well I, I think you saw it 
in, in the past in the big firms, right? But for a small firm, a regional firm to do that, that was a, a very, very radical step when they did that 37 years ago. And then since then, it has evolved? It's evolved. We, we don't do a lot of architectural design work anymore, so most of our architects are involved in program management and project management, construction management. We still do a lot of civil engineering, but also in the civil engineering we do a lot of uh, program management and project management. And then we've really evolving or are evolving into across the board into the public-private partnership side, as you mentioned. So uh, P3, that's the big buzzword now. Yeah. Why is that model becoming um, so much more desirable, I guess, to get big projects done? Well, it's it's been out there for decades. You saw it a lot in Europe particularly the UK and throughout the developing world, it's been really utilized to bring private dollars to help accelerate, enhance uh, government-funded projects. And uh, you saw a lot happening in Canada and then throughout the rest of the country. You saw it with toll roads. You saw it with mm -hmm. all sorts of public facilities and the universities and community colleges. And like many things, it takes a while for Louisiana to really adopt it. I think the big driver in Louisiana is obviously the budget and fiscal We don't crises. have enough money to get yeah. it all done, so we need the private money to come in. Yeah, and I think, I think even if you had more money, though, people are seeing that it really enhances the project. It allows you to do more, and it, and it really helps spurring economic development, and you have some win-win situations that even without money, you can enhance the, the, the impact the project has on the community. Very interesting. We're going to talk some more about that. While well, y'all are focused on on infrastructure, Matthew, your focus is on healthcare. Tell us how Navion works and and how this platform specifically that you all are selling um, helps the patient experience. Sure, and, and really just to start, our platform is not designed um, to save money. It is an outcome of the platform when communication is improved. That one of the impacts of improved communication has is lower costs. But really the platform is meant to help families understand and navigate um, the complicated medical and spiritual crises that occur when someone is critically ill in an intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. um, so the platform is a, is a mobile tool that's free for families that can be offered to them by hospitals when their loved one is admitted into the unit. And what it does is help educate them about expectations and how to think about um, the decisions that are often being asked to be made and why, why is this important is because you know for most of human history there wasn't that much that medicine could do when someone was very sick. Sure. And typically physicians knew their um, patients and the families they cared for from sort of birth you know for a long time and today when you go to the hospital when someone's critically ill that's the first time you're probably meeting the care team so there's not a lot of trust and right. an innate relationship so the platform is meant to help um, it's not going to ever substitute for that, but it just create a different type of connection to deepen the relationship through immersive content um, that helps educate families. So, Matthew, you sell this product to the hospitals, and then they provide it free to the users. Right, absolutely. So it's the, the hospital licensed the content, um, which is a suite of content that's applicable for any hospital with an intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also create local content that's pertinent to the demographic the hospital serves. So in terms of engaging community leaders and spiritual leaders that speak in ways that are meaningful to the population as they explore these topics, that's content that we create with the hospital to engage families. So so give me more of a specific example. I mean, if I have a someone in the hospital, a father-in-law right. who actually was in intensive care very recently. Right, so one of the what things... What would this platform look like to me? Right, so it's a, it's an, it's a platform 
um, that's accessible on your own phone or tablet, a device of your own. So you can access it when you're at the hospital or at home, or if you have siblings that are not present in Baton Rouge, for instance, they would be able to participate with this on their own device. Um, the content is falls into different categories, but one of the things that might happen now is you, you show up to the unit and you're sort of surrounded by a lot of high technology, you hear sounds, you see machines, people are moving around, you're not sure who everyone is or what things are. So some of the initial content might be about who's who in the ICU. It, it talks about what people's roles are, what their responsibilities are, what, does every, you know, what do the machines do, why you shouldn't be nervous if you hear a beep or if you see a spike in the monitor. There's content that really helps you think about what does it mean to make a decision for someone else, right? for your mother, your spouse, your sure. child, if they're very sick, how do you think about making a decision for them? Um, really helping people explore um, what's the plan, you know, what are the goals of care? Something that often is difficult to think about um, because typically you know, people say, should we do everything? And of course the answer is yes, but what does that really mean? And, and, and in terms of serious illness, I think you know, the thing is most people will say things like, I hope if I'm very sick I can be at home with my family and very few people say, I hope I'm surrounded by you know, fluorescent lights and hooked up to machines having tests <laughs> right. treatments at the end. And yet that often happens and the reason is because you know, the key piece is supporting the in-person communication that happens between the care team and the family. So our platform is on a messaging app, but what it does is try to facilitate a better meeting so sure. that people can is talk this, about values and care. Is this integrated with the, the patient uh, electronic health the record? The EMR, so very good question. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> right now... That's why I brought him along today. Yeah. <laughs> so that is obviously a critical piece for workflow integration uh, to make sure that it's accessible and easy to use for the care team. Right now it's a standalone web portal that's accessed on the hospital computer, but electronic medical record integration is what we're working on right now. And it's a big push from the government perspective to make sure that there's something called interoperability um, because a lot of those systems don't play nicely together. So if you're one hospital that uses one type of electronic medical record and you go to another one another time, there yeah. historically hasn't been a lot of opportunity to get the information. I think one of the um, pieces that's important is that there's often a lot of information but very little understanding. And what we're trying to do with this platform is increase understanding in a very basic way, which is... You know, as a patient, do you understand me as a doctor what your loved one's medical condition is and what the likely outcome is? And then do I as a doctor understand you as a family what your values are and what type of care is wanted? Are, are you, I know you're developing this product here in Baton Rouge. Are you limiting it to Baton Rouge yeah, right now? So Y'all are all so over the country. Where are you? Yeah, so we've been operational here at Our Lady of the Lake, which has been an early supporter and where we developed the platform. Uh, since the summer, and we've gone live in our second hospital, which is in uh, Monroe, Louisiana, uh, in October, and we'll be starting with our third hospital in the new year in New Orleans, and we're in fairly far um, discussions with a very large system in the Northeast to implement there. So this will scale across the country, and right now we have <coughs> a module for the adult ICU, mm -hmm. but our plan is to develop modules that are specific for the neonatal intensive care unit or for the pediatric intensive care unit, really where there's very high level of need for parents and their families as they um, you know, deal with those types of issues, but in a very different way. Right. Um, so you're scalable to all over the country if you wanted to be. That is definitely the goal. That's I the think plan. The, uh, the idea is to create a uniform... Um, mechanism to deliver complex content in a way that's immersive, 
that's not dependent on the individual physician or nurse or social worker you're talking to to talk about these subjects and then enable hospitals to customize that with additional content in a way that's you know, scalable in a meaningful way. Tim, I know CSRS has traditionally been based pretty much in this area, but you all are, are expanding outside state lines as well, pushing really into Texas. Where's most of the work y'all do now? Most of the work's really on the I-10 corridor, mm -hmm. from Lake Charles down to New Orleans and everywhere in between. And certainly we do work throughout the state um, and throughout the country. Some of our clients, and generally these are client-driven um, projects and programs. Uh, we do work for the Louisiana Community Technical College System all over the state. And, and we have clients like Canes that bring us all over the country. And we do, we do a, a projects and programs from time to time in Mississippi, Florida, and Texas. But the real focus is to build a sustainable business in all these, you know, the Gulf Coast markets ultimately, but start in Texas and Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, the panhandle of Florida. Now, like with Canes, for instance, what, what do y'all do for them? We, we're the program managers for their expansions, so that's, it's a very... A, a in very, terms of like the construction? The construction, the design and construction. Obviously, you know, Canes has a very significant look and feel, and that, that look and feel is wrapped around a very sophisticated delivery model for them that, that includes technology um, from the cooking and preparation standpoint, but also uh, really supports their culture, the friendliness and everything. So there's a lot of sophistication behind that that I didn't know a lot about a year ago. And, um, and so as you go into different markets and you go into different places they want to keep some of that but they also have to adjust to some of the local obviously the codes and and requirements in, in those areas but also you know the terrain's different the framework but even some of the culture aspects of it they need to adjust to that. Now how did, how did your business break down between private companies like that and, and government or public sector? So about two-thirds of the business is typically gov government sector which includes educational institutions and about one-third is private sector. Okay. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Stephanie Regal. We're talking with Matthew Rackleff of Navion and Tim Barfield of CSRS. Tim, one area that I think is fascinating that I that you all are involved in is, is negotiating with FEMA on behalf of government agencies right, right. in the wake of the floods and everything. So you all go in there <laughs> and go with them toe-to-toe -to, -toe to try to get as much money from FEMA as you can for the local school system or the local parish or whatever, right? That's right. The firm has really been involved in this since uh, the Katrina uh, work after, uh, really after the first wave of, of what we call disaster response, the disaster recovery work about 2007. So. The Recovery School District, Orleans Parish School District, City of New Orleans, as well as others, Jefferson Parish, St. John the Baptist Parish, and others helping them. And so FEMA has a very specific process. There's a, there's a lot of help and a lot of financial help that FEMA gives, but there's a very specific process that can cost you lots of money. millions and millions of hurdles to get to that it's, money, it's, huh? There's timelines, there's deadlines, there's uh, project worksheets that detail the damage, the the, the general FEMA rule is that you, they're willing to pay to repair the property back to the condition it was before. So you know, when you look, think about that and deterioration, depreciation, those things, so there's a lot of work on what was the condition before the storm. And then there's some enhancements that are allowed for changes in codes and standards, and so there's a lot of work there. 
And there's, we've been lucky to be involved in, in really two, the only two of its type before Hurricane Sandy, global settlements. So you take a bundle of impacted facilities and you, and you say, here's the total cost. The, the way FEMA was originally written, you get to rebuild that facility. You don't get to take things and combine schools and enhance. So uh, a lot of that's been, you know, you got to get the damage assessments correct and you have to fight those fights on codes and standards and enhancements. There's also a, uh, a hazard mitigation component where you can get additional funds. So if you can bundle all those together with a school system and take 100 schools down to seven, 70, you can really enhance and, and, and achieve some strategic goals too. So a lot of what, a lot of it's you know just very technical, but the other side of it's very strategic, understanding your clients, helping your clients. Um, develop the strategies. Many of them have always already had some strategic planning and everything, but after a disaster that can really change the demographics. have changed tremendously in New Orleans area. Uh, hopefully that won't happen in the greater Baton Rouge area as much. But y'all went up to, to New Jersey because of your experience here. They hired y'all to, to go up there and help them out. Disasters are, are an interesting um, skill set. You have to have the right type of people. The you know everything from the storm chasers, as they're often called in the business, to people with just a real heart for helping a community recover. I mean, it's a tough. There's it's around the clock work initially. It's tough conditions sure. often. Um, and then you have to. You also have to be technically competent, obviously, but managing the expectations of the clients. You're not going to recover. Famous. FEMA is a very slow, arduous process, and the better, you know, it's like everything else, the better you do it on the front end, the easier it is on the back end, but it's very adversarial. So the initial wave is we're here to help, and then after that it's we're here to fight and we minimize the outlay from the federal government standpoint, from the FEMA standpoint, you're trying to maximize the recovery for the clients. Sure. Both healthcare and infrastructure are chronically underfunded, and, you know, how do we come up to today to how do we come up with the money that we need to pay for everything that, that we need because the technology is there to do it but I mean it's like our expectations are so high now for what we think we need and deserve as a society and where does the money come from? Healthcare accounts for such a huge percentage of national spending so it's not really a question of if the money's there it's how is that money being allocated um, and part of the shift that makes something like what we're doing possible is a movement away from straight fee-for-service where providers are paid based on what they're doing to a values-based system, which incorporates other measures of satisfaction and quality care. Um, and for what we're doing, part, part of the thing is to really uh, look at what's happening in critical care units where the care provided is considered non-beneficial, mm -hmm. which can be somewhere like 10 to, 10 to 20 percent, sure. the highest cost care you know, in the system, and much of it is non-beneficial, and why is it happening? And often it's because of a lack of um, communication around difficult topics. Like, uh, like managing the expectations of the, of the loved ones, right? Well, just what is the likely outcome, and is this what your loved one would want? Yeah. You know, if really often sometimes there's poor understanding of what's coming next, if somebody has a procedure or, you know, certain treatment paths. So if you're able to, really the whole point of what we're doing is sometimes the care team will know on day three, four, five, six what the likely outcome is, and the family doesn't isn't aware of that until day 10, 12, 14, I mean, when they're really... After all those in, days on life support or something like that, right? It, you, it can be lots of different scenarios, sure. even if people recover. It, the ability to move those conversations up slightly by empowering 
patients, so oftentimes what happens is the care team walks in and they share medical information and families are unable to articulate questions and this intervention is meant to provide them with prompts to think about things and say, okay, let's talk about this and then it creates a different opportunity um, to move those conversations up and if we're effective at doing that, the implications, um, there's a ton of research that shows improving communications has these beneficial outcomes and I think we'll fall into that so y'all, spot. Y'all, you know, it's interesting because Stephanie talked about her father-in-law. My father is, has Alzheimer's and the last year has been tough. He had a fall and hematoma and, and, and from surgery through rehab and nursing home for a while and back home. But it sounds like a lot of benefits would be end of life type issues or like my father's a great example. He's not going to get better. He may be able to postpone the decline, at least as far as we know right now. But those decisions about quality of life and, and things like that, even from, you know, mm. can he have a half a glass of wine a night to a glass of wine? Right. And that, you know, my, my, my mother's just gotten away. It's okay to have a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm not a, I'm not a physician. Um, but what I, what I have come to appreciate about all of this is that it all requires discussion and really articulating values and what's important because... Oftentimes, it seems the system is set up for a very aggressive type of care, even when that's not what the family wants. And to prevent that really requires the opportunity to speak about what are the treatment options. And maybe the option isn't, you know, some of the interesting things about, and our, our focus is an end of life only, but obviously percent, that comes yeah. up. But what's interesting is oftentimes less aggressive treatment plans result in longer, mm-hmm. a longer, higher quality of life. Interesting. And especially in the oncology space, often, you know, stopping chemotherapy at the right time and moving to hospice or other um, other plans increases how long people can live in, in, in a way that's comfortable. So, I mean, those are all challenging conversations to have. And the question is, how do you create a framework? Um, so, you know, what do people do right now? They Google. They ask physician friends who may be not critical care doctors. They get stressed. They start praying. I mean, all things that still happen, but if you can provide them a resource that with content that the hospital has approved, right, that helps them start to think about those things. I mean, I see healthcare really moving in this direction, don't you? I mean, this Absolute. is absolutely, yeah. This is the well, way more it's going. Patients, so, uh, so the joke I think is that shared decision making is the buzzword, and it used to mean that the doctor made a decision and shared it with you. <laughs> <laughs> and now the expectation is that patients more fully participate yeah. in making decisions with their care team about what. Um, what the best plan is. So how did y'all both get from lawyers to what you're doing now? Right? <laughs> I mean, go everybody first. goes to law school, <laughs> and that's the be-all, end-all. And, and look at where y'all have come. You know, it's kind of funny looking back. When I was an undergrad, um, I was trying to decide maybe to go to business school. And I had a professor at LSU who, you know, was, my undergrad was in finance. And he said, really, it may be good to go to law school when I hadn't really thought about it. And then I had a friend walk by and she said, I just got into law school. And that's really kind of how I ended <laughs> up there. And part of it was my personality. I'm a, I'm a person of general interest and, and I think I'm one of those people that's good at a lot of things, but not great at any one thing. And so part of it was that. But when you start law school, and I really had a mind of going into business, but you realize when you start law school, they're training you to be a lawyer, not to be a business guy with a law degree. Mm-hmm. At least then, I think many of the programs have changed. Um, and LSU now has a joint MBA law, law degree that didn't have that then. So 
fast forward, I think what really happened as a lawyer, and I, I worked with a firm that went in-house, and you really, to be a good lawyer, you have to learn the business. you got to learn the business as well. My mentor in, in the law firm is you have to know the business as well as the business people we're representing because you, you can't identify what the risk, what the issues mm -hmm. are. You, you can't do the disclosures correctly. You can't manage the legal aspects if you really don't understand the practical parts of the business. So part of that was that that mentoring and, and getting into uh, going in-house with a firm, you just became part of the business from a strategic standpoint or an operational standpoint. And we were pretty young at the time at Shaw. And, you know, I asked for forgiveness instead of permission and, and you do things. And eventually, maybe I was too critical of some of the operational decisions and somebody said, you go do it. And, uh, <laughs> and you realized after a while, well, this is a lot harder to look like from the other side. <laughs> That's that's my story. What about you, Matt? Yeah, so I I was working as a, a lawyer, the most junior lawyer, on a very large project uh, with a family-owned business, a huge family-owned company out of India. And I met one of the one of the sons who was running the company, and I asked him how they built this company. It's kind of a remarkable company. He was telling the story, and I said, "This is totally fascinating." And the story of the company was much more interesting to me than the documentation of how to structure the deal. So I made the move from being an attorney to going to work in uh, global advertising agencies on the strategic planning and marketing wow. communication side, which I will say for me, having gone to law school and the little training I did have as an attorney has really been a huge asset because having the analytical skill set to think about problems and then bringing other creative uh, problem solvers to the table and being able to translate business requirements into creative execution, that is what the world is. I mean, that's where things are heading mm -hmm. because it's hard to, um, it's hard to have a much better product in some ways these days, right? It used to be that Nike shoes were better than everyone else's shoes, so you bought it because it was better. But now Nike, Adidas, Reebok, the quality is the same. What's differentiating it is the creative yeah, messaging. Yeah, the brand. The brand. The brand. For me, that was always the interesting part of that work is really trying to figure out what is the creative hook that meets the business requirements in terms of activating audiences and whether it's buying a product, a service, going to see a film, buying a video game, whatever it is, that piece is the same. And Navion, you know, what I bring to that, hopefully in some small measure, is this opportunity to engage people at a critical time when they're traumatized and cognitively impaired in a way that helps them do a little bit of what brands do successfully, which is make them feel slightly better mm -hmm. and open hearts and minds a little bit to think about things a little bit differently. I mean, that's, um, that's the goal. Well, Tim and Matthew, you both face a lot of challenges when you go to work every day. It's inspiring to have people with your level of expertise and diverse experience on the job. So you have great stories. Thanks for sharing them with us today on Out to Lunch. My guests today on Out to Lunch have been Tim Barfield, president of CSRS, and Matthew Ratcliffe, CEO of Navion. You can find out more about CSRS and Navion by following the links on our website. It's batonrouge.la and wrkf.org. Today's show was recorded live over lunch at Mansur's on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge. Mansur's is open for lunch daily from 11 to 2, for dinner nightly, and for brunch on Saturdays and Sundays. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Peter Raschuti. And our Baton Rouge business consultants are Charlie D'Agostino and Ann Edelman. You can see photos from this show on itsbatonrouge.la and on our Facebook page. These photos are taken by Ken Stewart. 
All the music on Out to Lunch is composed and performed by Mitchell Foreman. You can find more of Mitchell's music wherever great jazz is streamed or sold and at mitchellforeman.com. You can get this show as a podcast, you can listen to past shows, and you can keep up with us on all kinds of social media by going to our websites. It's batonrouge.la and wrkf.org. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for It's Batonrouge.la and WRKF 89.3 FM. I'm Stephanie Regal. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Mansur's for more business Baton Rouge style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Business First Bank, with locations throughout the state, including 11 offices in the Baton Rouge area, providing personal and commercial banking, treasury management, and wealth solution services to help clients succeed. Business First Bank, banking with greater momentum. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world.